You're listening to Which U.S. Laws Require Accessibility in Housing and How Well Do They Do? by Mayor Rindy. In the early 1990s, activists in Austin, Texas, wanted to help disabled people who were stuck in nursing homes and other institutions gain their independence and move into regular housing. Stephanie Thomas is board president at Accessible Housing Austin and a member of ADAPT, a national disability rights organization. Those kinds of places are really ghettos or or gulags in some ways for people with disabilities. People can and should live in the community with everybody else, but for one reason and another, they have a hard time. Thomas and other advocates in the 1990s soon discovered that one of the main problems was a sheer lack of homes with features like wider doorways, zero-step entrances, and lower-height kitchen counters. There didn't seem to be places for people to move. And in fact, people sometimes had to wait for somebody to die to find an accessible apartment. I was kind of like, well, why is that? That's so weird because 504, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, that's a lot of years ago. Section 504 says that in any housing development that receives federal funds, at least 5% of the units must be accessible for people with physical or mobility disabilities and 2% accessible for people with vision or hearing disabilities. In addition, since 1988, the Fair Housing Act has mandated a lower level of accessibility in all new multifamily housing in buildings with elevators and all ground floor units in walk-up buildings, whether privately or publicly funded. I looked around and and I found that they really weren't enforcing the law here in Austin. I I got a list of many of the places where they were supposed to be making them accessible, but they weren't really enforcing that at all. That was the case in Austin and across the country in the 1990s, and to a great extent remains the case to this day. Section 504 is the federal government's main tool for creating affordable, accessible housing, But activists across the country say local and federal officials enforce it only spottily, and developers and housing providers widely ignore its requirements. I think it's a national outrage, the way that this whole thing has just kind of been treated as kind of a cutesy little side thing that you don't really have to pay attention to. Billions of dollars, in theory. Section 504 is important because it applies to dozens of federal programs worth tens of billions of dollars a year. They include public housing, the Home Investment Partnerships Program, the Community Development Block Grant Program, Section 8 Housing Choice Vouchers, excluding private landlords, the National Housing Trust Fund, Section 202 Elderly Housing, and USDA Rural Housing Programs. Unlike the Fair Housing Act, which covers only new construction of multifamilies, Section 504 covers both new construction and renovation, which is critical for satisfying the huge need for accessible units, according to Thomas. In theory, it converts most federal housing programs into machines for generating accessible units. Another law that often comes up in discussions of accessibility is the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, which bans discrimination in areas of public life, including employment, education, transportation, and government services. The ADA mandates accessibility of areas like sales offices, common rooms, and entryways in public housing, university dormitories, and some private developments. It does not cover living spaces, 
but it did lead to the Supreme Court's groundbreaking 1999 Olmstead decision, which found that people with disabilities have a right to receive state-funded services in the community rather than in institutions. The ruling banned forced segregation of people with mental and physical disabilities in hospitals and nursing homes, and paved the way for them to move into less restrictive settings. About 39 million U.S. residents aged 15 and older, or 12%, have physical disabilities, but only 4% of homes can accommodate people with moderate mobility difficulties, according to an analysis of the 2011 American Housing Survey, or AHS. The same analysis found that only 0.15% of housing units were fully wheelchair accessible. The shortage is particularly acute for people with low incomes who have fewer housing options and are more likely to have disabilities. Among households with incomes below $30,000, 1 in 10 experience poor housing fit, with 7% having difficulties getting around their homes and another 7% having difficulties using rooms, according to an analysis by Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. For households earning $75,000 or more, only 3% had fit problems. The Harvard study also found ties between race and accessibility, although the gap fluctuated depending on age. Of all age ranges, housing accessibility varied by race most for householders over the age of 80. HUD Funding for Integrated Housing Another important program is Section 811 Supportive Housing for Persons with Disabilities, the only HUD program targeting non-elderly low-income disabled people. After a significant funding increase in the last two years, its current annual budget is $325 million. Section 811 funds originally went mostly toward building disabled-only developments, but now often support integrated housing developments. One component of Section 811, Capital Advance, pays nonprofit organizations to develop and run rental housing that offers optional supportive services such as case management and employment assistance. The program emphasizes integration, limiting units designated for disabled people in its condo and multifamily developments to 25%. The Capital Advance program serves about 28,000 households in 2,390 properties, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, or NLIHC. A newer component, Project Rental Assistance, funds state housing agencies' project-based programs. Since 2012, the program has, quote, substantially increased integrated affordable rental housing units for persons with disabilities within existing, new, or rehabilitated multifamily properties with a mix of incomes and disability status, according to the NLIHC. Its funds so far are projected to create 9,000 units. The programs have made a difference in places like Austin. After years of protests, lawsuits, and lobbying by disability rights organizers, as well as federal policy changes, local officials are much better at enforcing the 5% rule, taking advantage of federal funding streams, and considering accessibility needs generally, according to Thomas. Last year, Accessible Housing Austin cut the ribbon at Briarcliff, a 27-unit affordable apartment complex built with Section 811 dollars and other funding. Half of the units are accessible, and the other half are adaptable for people with disabilities. It's reserved for people who earn up to 50% of the area median income. We will rent to people who don't need access, people without disabilities, and people with disabilities that don't need access. We rent to any low-income person. 
some of the units are 811 units. Some of them are just income restricted. And then uh, we take Section 8 for housing choice vouchers. She recalls that in the 1990s, United Cerebral Palsy was one of the first to take advantage of the flexibility offered by Section 811, using it to buy existing condos and make them into affordable, accessible units. It was in a regular complex with all kinds of other folks living there, too. It was integrated in. And that was a really cool idea and really cool way to go. It was another creative way to use that money. Pushing for higher requirements. While Section 504 sets a minimum requirement of 5% of units accessible for physical disabilities and 2% accessible for hearing and vision disabilities, local or state housing agencies that parcel out federal funds may double the requirement to 10% and 4% or go even higher if they wish. ADAPT and other advocacy groups occasionally lobby local officials for increases, citing census counts of disabled residents to show the need for more accessible units. For example, more than a decade ago, advocates were able to convince the city of Philadelphia to raise the requirement to 10%. That's according to Nancy Salandra, a member of ADAPT and Director of Independent Living Services at Liberty Resources in Philadelphia. She says that since then, they've asked for an even higher threshold. Salandra notes that Los Angeles set an unusually high requirement in 2019 after HUD's Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity investigated the city's non-compliance with Section 504, the Fair Housing Act, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. The city agreed to provide 11% mobility-accessible units, plus 4% sensory-accessible units in new and rehabilitated buildings, as well as retrofit 3,100 existing units and provide super-accessible units in developments funded by programs like HOME and the 9% low-income housing tax credits. But Salandra and others say few municipalities or housing agencies agree to raise the percentage rules even when they have large populations of people with disabilities. They say it's an even tougher battle to get them to adopt visitability requirements, which are not required under federal law. Visitability, a concept championed by ADAPT organizer Eleanor Smith, is a basic level of accessibility for visitors to a home. One zero-step entrance, 32-inch wide doorways, and one wheelchair-accessible bathroom on the main floor. Philadelphia adopted a visitability requirement for development supported by its housing trust fund, which is funded with local deed recording fees. But officials declined to mandate it more broadly, according to Salandra. We tried in Philadelphia for at least 15 years to get a visibility ordinance, and we would have been the largest city to do that. It was just outrageous. You can't even get housing authorities to do it. Developers opposed to visitability mandates often cite the cost of accessibility features. Salandra says a new home can be made visitable for an added cost of $2,000 or less. But when the city of Philadelphia organized an accessibility-focused design charrette in 2010, a local building industry official said such efforts cost closer to $10,000 and also required other unpopular concessions, like giving up closet space to build a wider hallway. Salandra believes the resistance from architects and developers goes beyond money. They can't fathom not having steps. They can't understand that concept, that one entrance would have no steps. There's always been this huge pushback. She says it may have to do with old notions about 
homes on hills being more private or safer or less vulnerable to flooding. Developers can also be conservative and habit-driven and unwilling to adopt universal or barrier-free design recommendations from the federal government and other sources, according to Thomas. One thing is, is they have plans already made, I mean, drawn, and then they just want to use them over and over and over and over and over. More resources, better recognition. The federal government enforces Section 504 and the Fair Housing Act in part by conducting compliance reviews of housing agencies and suing providers or developers that are not meeting their legal obligations. Some of these cases target housing authorities, as in Los Angeles, that are failing to provide enough accessible units or act on tenants' requests for home modifications and other accommodations. In response to Justice Department lawsuits, housing authorities in Reading, Pennsylvania, and Bridgeport, Connecticut, among other cities, have in recent years agreed to build or renovate units or overhaul their systems for accommodating tenants. In November, HUD reached an agreement with the Housing Authority in Atlanta to remedy its Section 504 and ADA violations. Civil rights organizations also file such cases, often with Justice Department endorsement. In 2016, for example, the Equal Rights Center, or ERC, in Washington, D.C., won a federal court decision against Equity Residential, then the biggest multifamily housing developer in the U.S. Equity Residential had designed most of its nearly 300 housing complexes without required accessibility features. Another ERC case against developer Archstone Smith Trust ended in 2005 with the company agreeing to retrofit complexes containing 12,000 apartments in 16 states. Advocates say that current HUD officials are generally helpful on disability rights issues, The Trump administration was relatively hostile, ending a practice of quarterly meetings between a group of disability activists and HUD enforcement staff. Under Biden, however, advocates participate in weekly conference calls with the HUD secretary's office, says L. Dara Baldwin, director of national policy at the Center for Disability Rights, based in upstate New York. Yet Baldwin and others say HUD does not do nearly enough given the vast demand for more affordable, accessible housing. Salandra says advocates have for years been asking the agency to hike the Section 504 requirement for physical accessibility to 10% or 15% for all developments, rather than leaving it to local groups to lobby for increases, one jurisdiction at a time. They do move at glacier speed. That's how they've always been. In 2022... HUD put out an advance notice of proposed rulemaking aimed at improving Section 504, but it's unclear how or when the rule might change. Baldwin, whose work focuses broadly on legislative advocacy, says the federal agencies are also under-resourced to fight widespread ignorance and apathy toward disabled rights. There's only so much funding and enforcement. When you talk about the ADA and accessibility, across the board, people just receive federal funds and do what they want to do. We could sit here all day and I can give you a list of where people just completely ignore the ADA and say, we're just not going to do that. She says states and other entities know they don't have to follow the laws because no one's going to call them out on it. That is why I have a job. Advocates nonetheless continue to press for improved regulations and laws. Salandra says they have asked members of Congress to insert higher accessibility requirements into various housing bills, so far without success. 
They also support the Eleanor Smith Inclusive Home Design Act, a house bill that would mandate visitability in all newly built single-family homes and townhouses receiving federal funds. Another priority is more funding to create affordable housing, primarily Section 811 units, specifically for disabled people. More Section 8 housing choice vouchers would also be helpful, provided that enough accessible units are created to accommodate the increased number of voucher holders. Salandra says housing agencies must allow flexible use of Section 8 funds to modify homes. Funds from the National Housing Trust Fund and other programs should also be put toward purchasing front door ramps and adding other accessibility features to both new and existing homes. Baldwin says disability rights activists must constantly fight for basic acknowledgement of the need for accessibility, even from Democratic officials who are generally friendly to their cause. She says that when Democrats update their official party platform every four years, it's still a struggle to get the word accessible into the housing section alongside affordable. That was an issue back in 2020, she says. When housing was discussed, it was discussed in the context of affordable housing. It is not discussed in the context of accessible, affordable housing. And until that public image changes, all of these programs, all of these things that we have will never be used because people don't find it to be important. Thanks for listening. For more stories like this one, visit shelterforce.org.